Former President Trump, in particular, is you know known both for being litigious and for breaching contracts and, and pushing the limits of contractual relationships. So it is not surprising that we learn uh, upon his becoming a political candidate and then assuming the presidency that he considers it, you know, normal business practice and his entitlement to require employees to sign non-disparagement and non-disclosure agreements. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued in the Sled. Well, a non-disclosure agreement, better known as an NDA, is an agreement in contract law that certain information will remain confidential. As such, an NDA binds a person who has signed it and prevents them from discussing any information in the contract with any non-authorized party. Very interesting definition. Well, just recently, a New York arbitrator ruled against former President Trump and his campaign in favor of former White House advisor Amarosa Manigat Newman in regards to a 2018 lawsuit stemming from an NDA and Amarosa's tell-all book, Unhinged. Well, according to an article in the Daily Beast, the arbitrator found that the NDA went too far when Amarosa was forced to never say anything remotely critical of Mr. Trump, his family, or his family members, businesses, for the rest of her life. So do NDAs often go too far? And does this ruling set a precedent for future cases in Trump's world? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll talk about non-disclosure agreements. We'll take a look at former President Trump's use of NDAs, this recent ruling, the constitutionality of NDAs, the future of these types of agreements, and an actual Trump NDA from his campaign. And to do that, we have Professor Mark Fenster, the Stephen C. O'Connell Chair at the Levin College of Law at the University of Florida. His legal research has focused on governmental transparency, legal intellectual history, and constitutional limits on governmental regulation. He's the author of the book, The Transparency Fix, Secrets, Leaks, and Uncontrollable Government Information from Stanford University Press, published in 2017. He currently teaches contracts, payment systems, and statutory interpretation. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. Well, we're discussing, in particular, Trump's NDAs, but just generally, what is a non-disclosure agreement and what are the typical environments where they're used? A non-disclosure agreement is an agreement not to disclose, <laughs> to be tautological about it. It is usually either a standalone contract or a contractual provision by which the parties, in exchange for consideration, agree not to talk about certain things. It most typically comes up in employment relations, but it can come up really anywhere. The, these days, it can be a freestanding contractual provision, so the contract could merely have as its only subject matter the duty not to disclose information in exchange for some sort of valuable consideration. Or in an employment context, it could come up as part of a larger employment agreement. Right. And what is it that you're not supposed to be disclosing? I mean, is it like uh, company secrets and, and formulas and, you know, the Coca-Cola formula? 
Well, the beautiful thing about a non-disclosure agreement is that it is merely a boilerplate and the parties can fit in whatever it is they feel like fitting in. So the contractual agreement could specify precisely what it is that the parties are agreeing not to disclose. It could be a blanket covering particular periods of time. It can run the gamut depending upon the kind of relationship that the parties have. Now, oftentimes in an employment setting, it can be part of a, a series of agreements that the employee is making that could include the agreement not to compete with the employer for a particular period of time, ranging for a particular uh, geographical area. And it usually, and you know, most specifically, comes up in the trade secret area. Whether it is specifically a trade secret or it could be other sorts of confidential information that might not, that, that might not get trade secret protection, the point for the employer is to make sure that the employee isn't taking from the workplace some valuable information that could help a competitor or hurt the employer. Well, here in California, non-disclosure agreements between companies and non-salaried employees have been outlawed. And so the workaround that lawyers use is to do what's known as a trade secret agreement. So how's a trade secret agreement different than an NDA? Well, a trade secret agreement would be much tighter than an NDA. An NDA would extend to whatever it is that the employer includes within the contractual provision, which could really be anything that they might want to try to include. A trade secret agreement would uh, be a more technical, sort of in the Venn diagram of information that an employee could receive. It's a smaller portion of that that extends only to things that fall within the parameters of trade secret law. Right. Well, and I guess that's why they're used this way. Now, in also in California, non-disclosure agreements are allowed between executives and the company, but that's because there's a more equal bargaining power, I believe. Right. And California is on the forefront of uh, legislation that is prohibiting, uh, you know, they keep on expanding the number, the, the variety of non-disclosure agreements that are prohibited by law. Right. Well, let's take a look in particular at former President Trump's use of non-disclosure agreements. Now, it's probably not at all unexpected in the corporate environment where he was to see those kinds of things, was it? No, not at all. I mean, my my sense, and again, because these are non-disclosure agreements that are themselves not only uh, not only is the subject of the non-disclosure agreement not to be disclosed, but the non-disclosure agreement might not be to, might not be disclosable. That is to say, the existence of the non-disclosure agreement might itself be a secret that cannot be disclosed. The, the upshot of that is that we have no real way of knowing the extent of the usage of non-disclosure agreements. You know, there are certain ways of finding them from SEC filings and the like. But otherwise, with respect to just your common average uh, employee and employment agreement, uh, it can be difficult to figure out just how widespread they are. But it is the case that in the corporate environment, there are reasons both good and bad for employers to require of employees to sign this non-disclosure agreements. Now, former President Trump in particular is, you know, known both for being litigious and for, you know, breaching contracts and, and pushing the limits of contractual relationships. So it is not surprising that he, that we learn uh, upon his becoming a political candidate and then assuming the presidency, that he considers it you know, normal business practice and his entitlement to require employees to sign non-disparagement and non-disclosure agreements. 
So how does that work in the government, which is supposed to be presumably open and available for inspection? Can you use an NDA in the government? Well, you can in certain circumstances. I mean, you you run into First Amendment issues because when the government is attempting to enforce a non-disclosure agreement, they are the state that is limiting the free expression of individuals. The best example of a, a an enforceable non-disclosure agreement that the government uses is in the national security area, where certain employees within um, national security agencies, most famously the CIA, are required as part of their employment to agree not to disclose confidential information, classified information in particular, and when they are going to publish or speak on any sort of aspect of their job that might uh, conceivably relate to uh, classified information, they have to seek review of their comments uh, or review of their writings beforehand. But more extensively, to say to any employee that they must sign a non-disclosure agreement that is specific to an individual like the president that is deeply troubling and problematic and likely to be unenforceable, not least because you know, the, the fealty of any employee of the federal government is not to the president, it's to the government. Uh, and so the president should not be allowed to and, and cannot, in fact, enforce a non-disclosure or non-disparagement agreement against one of his employees. I would get that if the agreement was between the United States and the employee. But what happens in the situation where the agreement is between Trump himself as an individual and the person that's working for the federal government. Like you're just, I'm going to let you in my inner circle and I'm sometimes going to be talking about some of my corporate stuff because apparently he kind of also ran his corporations while he was president. But is anything like that even remotely enforceable? Well, it, it, it only goes to the extent of who the employer is. For example, when an employee of Donald Trump as president is employed by his political campaign, his political campaign is a private entity and not a, not a government entity. And so against an employee of you know, the, the, the campaign to reelect uh, Donald Trump, it's a different analysis than it would be if the employee was in the White House, was a member of the White House staff, or was, uh, was part of an administrative agency. And there's famously been a few books that have been written, in particular, Miss Omarosa, who uh, was in a fight with President Trump over the NDA. Right. And uh, she ended up winning. And uh, he has extended, uh, you know, I mean, like anyone, he does not particularly like those who are critical of him or who would give him bad press. And he has found that he's not been particularly lucky of late in trying to press his non-disclosure agreements, uh, whether against government employees or against his uh, niece. So that has, been a, that has been an ongoing problem for him, we can say. Right. Well, let's put the non-disclosure agreement up against the standard of constitutionality. How does it fit into the Constitution or does it? The First Amendment doesn't affect a contractual relationship between two private parties who agree to disclose or not to disclose certain things. There's no state action there. Uh, so there's no constitutional concern with a non-disclosure agreement. State contract law might limit that non-disclosure agreement. And as we've already discussed, California, by legislation, has curbed the ability for parties to contract uh, in this area. And in other jurisdictions, it could be legislative, it could be common law. 
The analysis changes, though, when it's a government entity who is requiring silence of a private individual. That is where the First Amendment starts to, the, the First Amendment protections start to kick in for individuals. And their non-disclosure agreements uh, face a tougher battle because of the Constitution. Well, and when, as this, uh, in particular, Ms. Omarosa's uh, NDA has been upheld, or it's rather struck down by the courts and the arbitrator here. What does that mean for the rest of them? Are they similar enough that they that they're all going to fall, and we have a floodgate of information flowing about Trump from not only his government time but also his private time? Well, we already have sort of a floodgate. It seems like whether individuals are stuck under NDAs or are otherwise intimidated from disclosing information, the information about President Trump seems to be. I wouldn't say comprehensively available, but widely available. And I think one of the things that's happened, and you know, Stormy Daniels sort of led the way in this, is that NDAs can serve as a kind of paper tiger often, that they appear and they feel to those who sign them to be uh, extremely scary things, where the, uh, in addition to potentially having to give back whatever money was given to you in signing a non-disclosure agreement, you would face the potential for litigation, the possibility for excessive uh, liquidated damages awards, uh, which are awards that are stipulated by contract. And so people who sign NDAs feel intimidated from trying to speak up, from breaching their contract. But one of the problems with NDAs is that When the existence of an NDA is made clear and when some of the content of the NDA is made clear, the party who's seeking secrets runs the risk if they try to litigate the issue, try to enforce the contract against the breaching party of bringing more attention to the NDA itself. Uh, So this was part of the problem that Harvey Weinstein faced was that for years he was able to intimidate all of his victims who agreed to NDAs. But once a few people stood up, more and more people stood up and it became increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for Weinstein, who was trying to retain his public position as well as his public reputation, to attempt to fight this flood of information that was being disclosed. And I think the same thing to an extent is happening with Donald Trump. The NDAs, to the extent that an individual who signed them is willing to, you know, run into conflict with Donald Trump, uh, the NDAs are oftentimes not worth enforcing once the information gets disclosed. Right. Well, that's the interesting part of it. I mean, do we really care? Do we really care about the information that flows from the floodgates? I mean, all the people oh. that come out, we have we have information about President Trump, which I guess we suspected all along. Uh, we right. have information about Harvey Weinstein, which I guess we suspected all along. Well, I'm not so sure about Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I think there were rumors within Hollywood and oftentimes with these sort of serial NDA uh, people, there are often rumors about their bad behavior, whether as employers or as engaging in sexual assault or rape or the like. But that doesn't make it more broadly. And so while there is deniability for Harvey Weinstein and for his enablers for a long period of time, once that deniability goes away because of the floodgates, then you know the hope would be not only Harvey Weinstein faces you know, ultimately criminal charges and, and is in prison as a consequence of that. But it one would hope that it would also lead others and especially lead the bar to second guess uh, using NDAs as broadly uh, and as, you know, sort of um, aggressively as they apparently have been used over the last couple of decades. 
Right. And well, Michael Cohen did it for Trump and a number of Hollywood lawyers have done it for the ones here. But let's let's talk about Hollywood's use of NDAs. I mean, you know, is it is it kind of free reign to then to be able to just, you know, engage in some level of sexual harassment and then pay off the person and silence them through an NDA? Well, the NDA is one tool among many. Uh, part of it is the the power that individuals wield within an industry, including especially Hollywood, where the mythology, as well as the reality of certain individuals' ability to get movies made and to have them be successful, allows them a significant amount of power. And so even in the absence of NDAs, there has been you know sexual violence and assault and, and domination throughout the history of Hollywood. But NDAs just provide an additional layer of protection for the wrongdoers who are trying to keep their reputations intact and keep their practices going, if you will, uh, against additional victims. I pulled up President Trump's, or at least in this instance, uh, Donald J. Trump for president, the standard non-disclosure agreement that was used during his campaign. It provides for arbitration. It provides for prevailing attorney's fees. It can, provides for a consent to an immediate injunction. It defines family members fairly broadly. It includes almost all of the Trumps and their spouses and grandchildren and everybody else. How do courts consider these kinds of things when they're so broad? Well, I think that's the problem that Trump is beginning to have. And the fact that these practices have become more widely known, I mean, that was in part one of the issues uh, with the Omarosa arbitration. It was in part some of the issues that he's faced in suing his niece with the the extent to which courts are going to read these agreements very narrowly are going to look at, for example, excessive liquidated damages clauses uh, that will find them unreasonable if they are unreasonable. In the Stormy Daniels contract, which is an especially bad one, the liquidated damages clause was a million dollars per breach, which you know by the time she made it onto sixty minutes would be uh, uh, would would start you know going into the nine figures probably. So the more the more aggressive these clauses get and these agreements get, the more difficult it will be, I think, for courts to uphold them and to enforce them. You know, it's a sort of typical business practice, it seems, and legal practice of President Trump that he sort of overclaimed and overextended himself with these contracts in order precisely to be as intimidating as they possibly can be to anyone who signs them. Well, I'm reading this one, and it's certainly intimidating. It's one I don't think I would ever draft as an attorney. One of the provisions in it says that you cannot offer any competitive services to another candidate. So it's essentially stifling your First Amendment right to, and for that matter, your right to vote. Can you actually do that? Can you uh, require someone to sign away the right to vote? Uh, is that part of the contract? Well, it says until the non-compete cutoff date, you promised and agree not to assist or counsel directly or indirectly for compensation or as a volunteer, any person that is a candidate or exploring candidacy for federal or state office other than Mr. Trump and prevent your employees from doing so. So no, it doesn't cut off the right to vote, but it does cut off your right to be able to freely express or freely associate. Right. That would be true of any non-compete agreement. Uh, so in that regard, it's it's no different from, although, well, in concept, it's no different from any sort of non-compete agreement. In practice, it sounds unreasonable. I mean, the idea that you could not consult with a, you know, an employee, uh, uh, someone, a candidate for state office or even lower federal office seems rather excessive. So, uh, you know, I mean, both in geography and potentially in terms of time. But more importantly, I think for Mr. Trump, it would mean 
that anyone who was a consultant of, of any reputation would be hesitant to sign on to that. Uh, because it, you know, it limits their ability to find work from someone else. And unless the Trump campaign is offering them an enormous amount of money, it would be crazy to sign it. Right, because it's for federal or state office other than Mr. Trump. So right. <laughs> any kind of, you, you're permanently banned from working. Virtually, it seems like it. Uh, that seems like a terrible idea. It might, you know, it might explain the extent to which you know Trump uh, has worked outside the usual parameters of the uh, of his party's apparatus of um, of electoral campaigns. Right, because I don't think you know, anybody who reads these things ahead of time would even consider signing them. No, I mean he tends to get many of his own employees who have worked with him or who he found otherwise, rather than the the you know the typical Beltway or you know political consultants that you usually see uh, working for either Democrats or Republicans. What about the provision extending this non-disclosure agreement to all of Mr. Trump's children, grandchildren, and spouses? That is extremely broad. Um, I don't know if a court would. Uh, I mean, I think it would depend upon the extent to the, the the connection between the person and Mr. Trump. But, you know, I mean, I don't that seems like an, an excessive uh, provision, but it's I don't think it's the sort of provisions that courts would in and of themselves refuse to enforce unless there was no notice for the party signing it uh, and then for the party disclosing information about someone in the you know extended universe of uh, of the Trump family and Trump industries. Right, because it includes family member companies, including anybody who creates one. So it, it, it seems as if Trump could enforce it at will and pretty much pull any provision from here and throw it against the wall. Exactly, right. Uh, and I think that would be, my guess would be, that would be one of the more attenuated clauses that Trump would use against someone who spoke out. My guess would be there would be other aspects of any litigation that Trump would file that would on top of that, seem unreasonable in its effort to try to enforce the agreement. So here's the classic law school professor question Uh about this contract. Okay. Given these kind of oddball provisions, do you think that an arbitrator, jurisdiction here is in New York, according to this thing, would consider blue lining this and striking out individual clauses, or would you just void the whole thing? Uh, that's an interesting question. It is. I think it depends upon the kind of uh, the kind of claim that Trump is bringing. As we've seen with Omarosa, uh, arbitrators in New York are are following closely what New York courts are doing uh, with respect to enforcing non disclosure agreements. And so, you know, my sense is that given how overwritten this contract is, the arbitrators will, as with the courts, refuse to enforce them uh, and not just blue line them. So if it wasn't that bad, you might you might lose a clause or two, but keep the whole agreement. Right. So the I mean, this goes to the strategy of drafting a contract, right? Which is, you know, you could if your goal is to intimidate, uh, then you want to write as strong a contract as possible in order to throw it in the face of anyone to whom you are sending a demand letter to shut up. And in doing so, you could point to the, an excessive liquidated damages clause and note the fact that uh, Mr. Trump is a known litigator and note that, you know, at minimum, they would have to return whatever money they were given as part of the consideration of the contract. So the to for maximum intimidation, you would write a contract like that. For maximum success in litigation, however, you would want to try to write a more reasonable contract. And, you know, the direction of legislatures and the direction of courts now suggests as much to the bar. 
Well, and here's the here's the end of it, which is kind of the interesting twist to this whole thing. The interpretation and representation by counsel provision. It says the agreement has been drafted on behalf of Trump only as a convenience, but may not be as reason of such action construed against Trump. And it says then, now you've had the opportunity to consult with counsel and you can't claim that you haven't. But what it doesn't say is that that counsel that you've consulted with has had an opportunity to affect the draft. Right, exactly. Which, you know, one would presume, given the fact that this is a standard form that you've downloaded from the campaign website, uh, the idea that this is in any way negotiable seems kind of a laugh. Right? You wouldn't think so. Right. It's just an amazing, overreaching kind of contract that, uh, as an attorney, I mean, I've seen NDAs throughout my career, and I've never seen one this this uh, broad. No, it is. Uh, I I used to teach, I stopped this here because I'm not sure how relevant it is to one else, uh, but I used to teach the Stormy Daniels NDA that Michael Cohen had drafted the first day of uh, their law school careers. And uh, it is one of the worst documents that I've ever seen uh, because uh, it does what you are describing for the campaign, but does it in an incredibly infantile almost manner. Poorly written, poorly, you know, poorly written, poorly crafted, poorly spelled, poorly numbered. I mean, it's just uh, poorly laid out. And it is, it's a great exercise for the students who have had, you know, no law school classes before to look at a contract and to scratch their heads and say, why would anyone write something like this? And to be able to, as in fish in a barrel, be able to find all the errors extremely quickly, not all of them, but many of the errors extremely quickly. Does it seem as though President Trump tried to draft it himself based on a bunch of cobbled together notes and former contracts? Uh, I, it seems like that's what Michael Cohen did. <laughs> I, don't see, <laughs> I don't see that Mr. Trump have, uh, would have ever had the patience or I, I wouldn't want to say skill, but certainly patience and discipline to sit down and try to cobble together contractual provisions from different parts of uh, boilerplate. That's so interesting. Well, here's the question about Stormy Daniels' contract. Mm. How can it even be legal in the first place since the act itself that she's trying to keep quiet was illegal? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I assume that she has never conceded that she was paid for sex. I assume that it was merely just a, uh, you know, a liaison uh, between the two. It's possible that Mr. Trump paid for certain things, but it was not an exchange for the sex act. It was exchange for her companionship and for his enjoyment of, uh, of hanging out with her. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Exactly. Well, wink, wink, nudge, nudge is, you know, it's, it's not unimportant. <laughs> No, but so in that instance, let's go down that path. Okay. What happens in the instance where she does admit, I received $130,000 for the sex act? Can mm -hmm. the NDA even be valid at that point? No, at that point it would be a, well, although again, the contract isn't for the sex act itself. It's for keeping secret the, the existence of the sex act. So well, that, I mean, that would be, now that sounds like an criminal. interesting fact pattern. True, but it's only about the information about it. It's not, a, it's not a contract to have illegal sex, to pay for sex. It's a contract to talk about that. So, hmm, interesting question. I'd have to do some research on that. How, does, how do NDAs play when there are legitimate legal processes? Say, in this instance, uh, take, for example, what did not happen yesterday, Steve Bannon not showing up for his appearance in court. Our appearance before Congress. So now they're proceeding criminally against him. What happens in that instance? And Steve Bannon sits down Congress. He's obligated under the law to tell the truth. 
and but yet we can assume he's bound by this this uh, Trump campaign NDA or at least something very much like it. Can he talk? Uh, yes, he can. The non-disclosure agreement can't stop him from talking if required by Congress. Even if the agreement doesn't state as much, a court still could command him to talk, notwithstanding the contractual agreement. Unless you're willing, like uh, some people have in the past, to spend some time in jail under contempt charges for failing to testify. Exactly. I mean, similar to a reporter who is unwilling to disclose their sources uh, because of a non-contractual agreement, but just an ethical agreement with a source to protect their identity. Right. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our programs. It's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So I'll toss it over to you to do that. Final thoughts on this is just uh, what the future of NDAs will look like uh, and uh, what, uh, whether Me Too and the, the aftermath of uh, what happened to Harvey Weinstein suggests a world in which lawyers and their clients are less willing to enter into NDAs or view this as merely a bump in the road, whether California's enactments that prohibit uh, NDAs uh, for in certain contexts will have a wider reaching effect than in California and will affect practice or whether the lawyers will find a workaround to prohibitions against NDAs. My contact information, you can reach me at, at the law school. You can find me at the University of Florida Levin College of Law, where I'm a professor. Uh, I tweet only occasionally and usually funny things rather than professional things, but occasionally relating to NDAs or other uh, law or academic-related things. And my handle is mfenster21, so first initial, last name, and the number 21. Great. Well, as we wrap up today, we'd like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Benster, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure, Craig. Thanks so much. And for our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.